0: this <coughs> <Hopefully it looks coughs> uh, today we're going to watch a um, Q conference from Oz uh, Guinness um, I don't know if everybody knows who I am I'm Steve Sherman I uh, work here at Otter Creek in missions I also teach missions at Lipscomb, which is a pretty neat job doing both things. And, but one of the interesting things that you find out is you little tidbits of history that kind of pop out at you. And uh, this, this is an interesting piece of this. Oz Guinness is actually the great-great-grandson, great-great-great-grandson of the person who invented Guinness beer in <laughs> Ireland. And uh, it turns out, the reason he invented it was because at that time, you know, you drink water in Ireland and you got sick. So he created this beer that was also very, or at least at that time, they thought it was very nutritious. (laughs) And not only was it nutritious, but the other alternative for drinking there was whiskeys. And uh, the hard kinds of liquors which created all sorts of havoc in Ireland with alcoholism and everything. So he creates this beer, it becomes famous worldwide, makes all sorts of money, but he is also a very, very devout Protestant. So he funds somewhere between 150 to 200 mission points in northern Africa along what they call the Sahal. And it is actually the thing that has attributed the fact that it stopped the Muslim advancement into Africa. So we can thank Guinness Beer for <laughs> <laughs> stopping the Muslim advancement into the rest of Africa. It's kind of one of my favorite little stories. You never know what's going to happen in history. So we're going to watch this one, and then we'll talk about it. <laughs>
1: Do we live with our deepest differences? We're at a very solemn moment for humanity. The last century was the most murderous in human history, and today, in this century, we are witnesses to the horror of yet another genocide, which many world leaders are refusing to name. We are seeing the heartbreak of a tidal wave of desperate and unwanted often migrants and certainly in the West we're living in the heated conflicts of what is now in America 50 years of incessant culture warring but as we look at this you can see the West is weakening American leadership is faltering the international global order is being called into question And one of the deepest issues is coming up again and again, how do we live with our deepest differences? And we have to say that we who are followers of Jesus enter this discussion in a mixed light. We are, and there's no question, the pioneers of freedom of conscience and religious freedom. From Tertullian and Lactantius, right down through Roger Williams and William Penn, And many of the greatest heroes of this issue, they were followers of Jesus. At the same time, particularly because of the medieval era, we have been some of the perpetrators of the worst evils against freedom of conscience. Take the Inquisition, or the notion that error has no rights, or the terrible forced conversion of our Jewish friends. And today, a third part, We are the most persecuted faith in the world Wherever there is persecution In almost every place Christians are persecuted too Not alone But profoundly persecuted So this issue How do we live with our deep differences Is one that has stakes for humanity And the future And certainly for the Christian church I would just stress three things That we need to wrestle with First we need to affirm and appreciate the foundational primacy of freedom of conscience and religious freedom. It's under a cloud today, dismissed as a cover for discrimination or bigotry or hatred. But it is the first of the political rights. There's no ranking, that would be invidious. But if you work out the logic of each of the rights, Freedom of association depends on freedom of speech. Freedom of speech assumes and requires freedom of conscience. And when the inner forum of the conscience is respected, then the outer forum of the public square can be protected too. Not only that, it's the key to civil society. If we're not to have states, governments that are overburdened and overburdening, You need to have a robust, thriving civil society with non-profit organizations all over the place. And it is religious freedom which is the key to their flourishing. And of course, religious freedom is the key to social harmony. There has never been any way of bringing together diversity with harmony and yet having liberty. Diversity, harmony, liberty. All three. Some countries have two. Diversity with harmony, but coercion. The trick is to have all three. And to do it, you need to have religious freedom. The second thing we need is to assess and choose the best model to lead the world forward. At the moment, there are two extremes. One is the so-called sacred public square, where some religion is preferred or established... And everyone who does not share that religion is necessarily second class, sometimes with life-threatening consequences. There are mild versions and there are severe versions like Iran and Pakistan, but that does not guarantee religious freedom for everybody. The other extreme is the so-called naked public square where all religion is strictly excluded. And of course, again, there are moderate versions and there are strict versions like China and North Korea. But you can see since most of the world is incurably religious, that does not provide justice and freedom for most of the world. The third position is what's called a civil public square. Where you have public life, where freedom of conscience and religious freedom is guaranteed, for everybody and obviously they're taught at the same time the so-called three R's of public life rights, responsibilities and respect so that people know how to differ with the differences of other people agreeably and not violently or coercively. The third thing we need is to work hard and what it takes to achieve such civility in public life. We need first to see a massive restoration of the understanding of religious freedom. It is not freedom for the religious. It is freedom for all beliefs and all worldviews, religious or secular, transcendental or naturalistic. It is for everybody. But not only that it is not as the new york times covers it recently something to be put in inverted commas or seen as a cover for bigotry or discrimination no far from it it is the fundamental anchor against which bigotry runs aground it is fundamental for everybody the second thing we need in working towards it is a reopening of the public square Instead of those who would like to drive religious voices out and have an antiseptic cleansing in the public square, we need to open all voices to the public square. And the great atheists of today, like Jürgen Habermas, would argue that when any religious voices are excluded, as certain people in some of our countries are trying to do, that is highly illiberal and not true freedom. And the third thing we need to make it practical is to renew civic education. Freedom is never a product of law alone. The law is precious and gives us guarantees. But freedom is a product also, and more importantly, of what the great Alexis de Tocqueville called the habits of the heart. It's when parents teach their children freedom. It's when teachers teach their students freedom. That freedom in all its form becomes a habit of the heart and therefore a thriving concern in any country. And many of our countries have seen no decent civic education for the last 50 years. So here we are with an incredible issue for the world and for tomorrow. In our postmodern world, with all the culture warring that's going on, We are seeing the maximum chaos, the maximum conflict, and the maximum controversies. They are disastrous. Humanity has a stake in this issue. Christians certainly have a stake in this issue. I would argue if we had longer that there's nothing like the Christian gospel for giving us the components that provide the answer to these great challenges. But I would just say, at such a time, with such an issue for the world it would be tragic if this generation were missing we each have to so think so speak and so live in private and in public that it may be said of us as it was said of king david many centuries ago he served god's purpose in his generation. And how we live with our differences is crucial to our time. Thank you. So this one's going to be hard
0: to find something to talk about, right? (laughs) But what are your impressions of what Oz was saying about religious freedom? How do we negotiate this?
2: My sister once commented recently that um, you know she felt like she couldn't speak out uh, on her beliefs because she was seen. She would be seen as a bigot or as somebody with hatred. You know, if she spoke out and said, "I believe that homosexuality is a sin" <coughs> or something like that, she would. She was afraid to say something like that because she's like, "Well, if I say that, then people are just going to see me as a bigot." When it's my freedom to to believe that, and you know I think that it's it goes on both sides to where um, we have to be careful to we have to have room to allow the possibility that we might be wrong uh, in our beliefs and allow other people to voice their uh, their their beliefs and their religious freedoms because otherwise, if we don't. Uh, it, it becomes, we're, we're just as bad as the other side of saying, you know, if you're not like me, then you're like them, and there's no middle ground in between there.
0: So in a civil dialogue, we need the ability to be able to speak and talk intelligently about issues and yet be able to have differences without bullying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what else? navigate would have been a better word. (laughs) Well, let me ask this. Is there a difference between freedom of choice and freedom of conscience?
3: them and them to share with their beliefs with me because the common threat was a totalitarian, ruthless perversion of, of, of the Islamic faith. So um, the more non the more education and the more relationship there was more freedom of choice. The more educated they they were, the more religious freedom there was. There were, um, women's rights, you know, was you know that's one thing that I noticed. That the most educated of my, you know, Islamic friends, more drifted towards religious freedom, freedom of choice, and less totalitarian. But it was based on really good relationships. I mean, I noticed among my fellow soldiers, the ones of us that were actually embedded with the Afghan army. Got to know them. Had it, it came away with a different feeling than the ones that were not embedded with the Afghan army and were secluded to you know fobs or paces where they weren't, they didn't have that opportunity. They came back with a completely different opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah. My, I mean, of course, I worked in Central America and uh, worked in Guatemala especially, and of course Guatemala was almost a hundred percent orientation towards Christianity. Of course, there's a lot of secularism, a lot of other different kinds of things that were going on there, uh, difference between Protestants and Catholics and things, but my first exposure, I mean, physical exposure, is uh, probably, (coughs) what, five years ago, six years ago, we had a family move in next to us, and both of them were Sunni Muslims. And uh, both of them were medical doctors and we got to know them and had just incredibly wonderful times of experiment with food and exposure of thought and of course they were I would say moderate Muslims they certainly weren't secular Muslims but just a very uh, intelligent couple and it created some dialogue and some things that and and we still occasionally keep in touch they had to move uh, east uh, for his um, practice and and things but it was just one of those opportunities that we had to have just a really interesting relationship and obviously a very different look and yet one of the things that was interesting to me is we found that we also had some things in common so uh, let me ask you this then <coughs> what are some of the issues that we face in the United States today that are touched by this overall kind of umbrella idea of freedom and freedom of conscience. Can you just name some of those topics that touch on this? I mean, I can think of one right now where we have kind of this movement towards restricting Muslims becoming uh, immigrants to the United States. Um, I can see that, that as being one of those. And I know uh, some of my Muslim friends are feeling a whole lot more fearful today than they did a year or two ago. There's this, uh, there's this big debate about what do we do with our history of slavery and um, you know what? These, this Confederate memorial stuff—that's—it happened in Charlottesville. Um, you know, it's—that's the last couple of weeks have been the, the, the news cycle's been obsessed with people using the debate about what to do with that as a rallying cry for various viewpoints that are coming in conflict. That's
4: a good one. Yeah. What else? Yes. Look there's an the example
0: the things that uh, scared me the other day, I was, I think it was NPR that I, I was listening to, which I'm a nerd, but uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was, as they were saying how the United States is getting farther and farther apart on the extremes, but some of the very things that we think of as opening up to us the world, the internet, uh, like if you go on Google search and you a particular pattern of thought, then Google will continue to give you that and not give you the opposing view. So that you have a dialogue, it just reinforces what you already believe. And again, the public forum and, and the idea of being able to discuss and look at differences of, of opinion, differences of conscience uh, becomes more and more closed by an incredible thing that actually has opened up to us all sorts of information. But even the logarithms, analog (coughs) analog rhythms and stuff, not analog, logarithms that are created by that are things that are also driving us farther apart. What else? Yes.
5: Least, it's my least favorite thing to do. And used to have on <coughs> the news to try to follow what's going on. And now, when you turn it on, there's such polarization, um, even from the political standpoints. When politicians get up there and they they polarize the country, they don't show respect. Um, that's what I, I find really hard to listen to and to. Figure out because I think that's adding to the to the separation of society is when they're looking at the leaders of our world, all the politicians, and hear them disrespect um, in various contexts. There's not a, uh, there's never from the media standpoint. There's never a there's this side and there's this side, so so that they show both sides of the story and um, you know when you're trying to teach your teenagers that we are victims to media and that if you really wanna follow that, you've gotta, <coughs> gotta search to find both sides. I have, I have, my oldest son is, is you know, on one foot out the door and I, he is uh, becoming very political, in a polarized, trying to teach him how to look for the other side, that there is always another side, even when you bring it down to just basic relationships, right, and you hear about divorces and you hear about breakups, you can't just go with the one side of the story that you hear from the friend of the friend. <coughs> you have to look at both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's really terrifying as a parent, is as an adult, we can go, oh,
0: Yeah, and I think that raises a really interesting question, how does the community of followers of Jesus then speak into that you know, what is our role
3: and how do we work through that I was thinking, it seems like an opportunity to shine and because there is such a lack of tact and lack of respect and lack of love this is an opportunity for Christians to really Shine, and it's pretty easy because the rest of the country is learning from the top down how to be disrespectful and lack of tact and lack of love. This is an opportunity to shine as Christians. I mean, we have to shine the light so we can share the gospel. That's our job. But to, to just go out there and be kind and polite and respectful is going to be really. Starting to be (laughs) countercultural, it really is. I mean, and it's like, wow, that's easy. I just have to be nice today to to, to shine the light of Christ because on the road and at the grocery store and wherever, you're not going to see a whole lot of kindness on those days. Yeah, even
0: if we hold differences and very strong opinions, is something we can learn how to express ourselves in ways that are not incendiary and create dialogue rather than uh, a shouting match between two different opposing
6: Complex, rich topics. But if you oversimplify those, they, they butt heads because evangelism, if you oversimplify, means I'm right, and I need to show everyone how right I am. And if you do that, then religious freedom becomes very threatening. And it becomes almost anti-Christian. So I think um, one way to help overcome that is to find commonalities. And I think the other video we, we looked at that talked about religious freedom, I think that's in essence what he was trying to say, is a lot of times if Evangelism has meant trying to get other religions to believe what we do. And so maybe that's just <coughs> a, not the right focus. I mean, if there's a, a Muslim group who's looking at giving people clean water and feeding, giving kids shoes who don't have them and helping the really, you know, alleviate poverty, and we are too, then that doesn't, then we're all on the same side. I mean, you know, there are definitely some very real issues there that I don't think anyone's ever The discomfort is real, and it's there, but I think focusing on those
0: commonalities is the best strategy to kind of move forward. Yeah, I had a, uh, when I was doing my doctorate out of Gordon-Conwell in theological, (laughs) I had one of the professors who works in Northern India, and of course, you know, there's a lot of incendiary things between (laughs) radical Hindus. But one of the things that he said that really appealed to me is he said, any time that we have these kinds of discussions between religions, we need to speak to their strengths as well as their weaknesses. In other words, recognize what we have in common, recognize the things (coughs) that we admire and appreciate, as well as discuss the weaknesses. But if we do that more, we'll find we have things that have commonality. And I know... Kevin and I have worked in some communities in Guatemala where you have these evangelical groups who are pretty radical, and then the Catholic groups who are, and they don't have anything to do with each other, and it actually brings the whole village to a standstill, and they can't make any kind of progress, even on the idea of clean water. And so one of the <laughs> one of the great uh, questions is how do we bring these communities to work together on the things that they can see that they both need the things that are good and uh, interestingly I think when you start working on those kinds of things then you start seeing the humanity in the other instead of the enemy and then that creates an opportunity for open dialogue which we can both learn from Uh, but that's really a hard thing to do. It seems like it's the hardest thing in all of this. And one of,
7: one of the many drawbacks to our availability of information is we have every piece of hate and fear published at our fingertips and in our pocket. And in a strange way, I think we're kind of comforted by that, uh, by seeing by seeing hate seeing absolute hate from people. And the reason that we're comforted by it is that we're comforted by the fact, well, that's not me. I'm not carrying that sign. I'm not marching in that march. I don't have that armband on my sleeve. That's not me. And because that's not me, I'm doing my job. I don't have to go out and seek commonalities because I'm not looking at, I'm not that hateful. And when when we have the spectrum of complete hate and complete love and all we're doing is measuring ourselves from the complete hate
0: side and we're measuring ourselves from the wrong end of the spectrum. Yeah and I think added to that is the other part which is the fact that we want to reinforce the fact that we're right instead of saying there is an area these areas in my life that I could be wrong. I need to listen. I need to work with and if we can paint some other group as being totally evil, then it just reinforces our feelings of our goodness and uh, but it also creates a tremendous amount of dissonance within the common good of a society. Any other thoughts? Yes. One of my doctoral dissertation committee members at Duke Fifty years ago, ran down the hall and said, "Without initial uncertainty, there can be no learning." (laughs) And that's become a lifelong mantra to me. That's a good statement. Um, Yeah, yeah. Always questioning whether we really understand it. I'd also say that between you and your Muslim neighbors, you and my and your Muslim neighbors, the kingdom of God came as we pray. Yeah. Boy, we got some good food out of that. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. Uh, I think next week is our last week, is that right? And then we'll have some other venue of classes. Thank Thank you.